Welcome back to Supreme Myths, and I am excited to talk about one of my favorite topics today with, I think, maybe one of the leading experts, if not the leading expert, on that topic in our country. We're going to talk about Supreme Court recusal with Professor Louis Varelli III. Uh, Lewis graduated from Duke with a bachelor's and I think a master's from the University of Pennsylvania, a JD from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he, like me, he worked at the trial division of the Department of Justice for five, for five years uh, in the civil division. And his book, Disqualifying the High Court, Supreme Court Recusal and the Constitution, um, is what we're going to talk about today. The book came out a few years ago, but it's really important right now. He's also the co-author of a casebook on administrative law. And if we get to it, we'll talk about the major questions, Dr. And Lewis, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. All right. So first of all, you wrote this big book on Supreme Court recusal. Um, how did you get interested? Why did this topic appeal to you? So I was minding my business at a law professor conference at the AALS conference, and I walked into the judicial ethics panel and sat at the back. I had been teaching for maybe two or three years at the time, and I was listening to a very interesting discussion about judicial ethics and the statutory requirements for judicial ethics and the Supreme Court. And I thought to myself, and I was sure I was missing something, why does any of this apply to the Supreme Court? Why is this constitutional at all? Why is it that Congress gets to tell the highest, member, the highest ranking members of another branch of government whether or not they can participate in a case. And that started a research project that is now 13 years old. It spawned several articles in a book. Um, and as you know, I've taken the position that the federal recusal statute is unconstitutional as, as it applies uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, let, let's back up a second. The U.S. Supreme Court says it doesn't apply to them, right? <laughs> not in so many words. They certainly imply that. They've been very polite about it. Um, but they've said under oath at congressional hearings and in writing at the 2011 year-end report in the federal judiciary that the Supreme Court is different and therefore that our traditional understandings of recusal don't apply to them. And to the extent the recusal statute reflects those traditional understandings, it might not apply to them, even though the statute by its language is unequivocal. It says, shall recuse. Right. I, I, that 2011 year-end report by Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, we've talked about it in this podcast before because that was, a, that was, in my opinion, one of the worst. Those reports are usually just innocent stupidity, but that one was nefarious because, in my opinion, you may disagree with this, but, but his position on ethics in general in the Supreme Court was basically, trust us, we'll do our best. And I didn't, I didn't like that very much. Um, before we get into all your book and, and all the issues, I want to ask you a question that I... Um, have taken a position on for 33 years, and I'm probably wrong, so I want to make sure I'm right. Um, so I want to go back to the very beginning and Marbury versus Madison. For those non-lawyers, all the lawyers and law, and law professors listening understand this. For the non-lawyers listening, let me just say quickly, this was the case where the Supreme Court first articulated a rationale and justification for judicial review. Uh, many people like me consider it where we should start with constitutional law. Some people say start with McCulloch. I say Marbury, it doesn't matter. But the reason there was a case was because one of the judges that the president and Congress, outgoing president and Congress agreed could be a judge, um, Jefferson said, no delivery, no commission. And he, does, and, he's not, and, he, and he didn't get it, so he sued. The reason he didn't get his commission is because John Marshall, the chief justice, who, believe it or not, was the secretary of state at the time, and his brother tried to deliver the commissions, and they did to a lot of judges, but not to the one, not to five of them, including Marbury, who filed suit. And it seems to me, since we're only in the case because the commissions weren't delivered, and John Marshall was responsible for delivering the commissions and didn't do so, no blame attached. It was hard back then to do it, but he should have recused. Not have to by Congress, just this is not a congressional thing, just as a judge, he should have recused. Do you have thoughts? Yes, and I would say I agree with you until the very end. Okay. So 
Certainly, is that a recusal hypothetical from a first year con law um, class where recusal would be mandatory? Yes. The problem is, and Marshall demonstrated this in three cases right around that time, he had a very inconsistent recusal standard. Now, as a matter of law, he was not required to recuse, even common law. I wasn't talking about it. I was just talking about doing the right thing. That's all I was saying. Right. As an ethical matter, the answer would be yes, but. And the but is that the Supreme Court is different. And what do I mean by that? Um, justices are not replaceable. And we might end up talking about that at some point, right? Because I yeah. know we don't always agree about that. But let's yes. assume they're not, right? Yes. That if, if um, just Chief Justice Marshall had recused himself, there would not have been a replacement justice to take his place. Um, we would have been deciding what you and I, I think, agree is where con law should start, right? Maybe the most important yes. case in American constitutional law history with a, a depleted court, right? So in my view, what Chief Justice Marshall had to do was decide for himself, is there an institutional benefit or interest in having a fully stocked court decide the most fundamental issue of um, constitutional power involving the judiciary, or should my obvious conflict of interest, and it was obvious, um, you know, counsel against me participating. And of course, we know how it turned out. He decided against his own interest. It, right? Jefferson wins, which is the only reason. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. I got to stop. Well, loses. Let's do that. Yo, Marshall won and Jefferson lost in the long run. And that's what Jefferson said on his deathbed. As he was dying, he was complaining about yes. Marbury versus Madison. So um, I have right. a question. But in terms of the conflict of interest, he didn't act consistent with his conflict of interest. Right. right? His conflict of interest was right. to cover for his mistake. And he didn't do that. He did the opposite of that. That's fair. That's, that's fair. He did. Rec- I'm having a senior moment on the case, but he did recuse himself in an incredibly important case very early on in American history. And I'm right. Am I? You, and it was because he had sat as a circuit judge in that case, right? But he did not recuse himself in a case where he owned land. I thought he did recuse himself in, in that case, where he owned land. I thought he from did. Hunt, from Martin? It yeah. was Martin and Stewart, right? Okay. And okay. I, yeah, so he, recu- he recused himself in one and he didn't recuse himself in the other. Right. Um, and that's how, and that's how I start the book, right? It's describing the Chief Justice Marshall was yes. making decisions about recusal that were not legal. Not, the, not to say they were illegal. They were non-legal. They were somewhere between ethical and institutional. And that is no less necessary now in the way our court is structured than it was then. He was asking himself two questions. What are the ethical consequences of participating? And what are the institutional consequences of participating? And they're both real. And now the problem is he balances them for himself. There is no, there is no reviewing body. Yes, and we'll get to that. that. We will definitely get, we'll definitely get to that. It's interesting what I tell my students, Lewis, about Marbury is it is a great foreshadowing of constitutional law for the next 20 years. Justice Marshall um, found the statute unconstitutional that didn't exist, and he decided the merits before jurisdiction. And I still think he probably would have been better off recusing. So that's how con law started, and it's not, it's not a great beginning. I'll also mention there were six justices right at the time. So it would have been five of six, not eight of nine. Right. Um, so it would have been an odd number, although it's interesting that the first number was even uh, of justice. The first number was six. Right. So all that is fascinating stuff. Um, after Marsh, after Marbury, when, you know, look, I took con law in 1980 from a professor who'd been teaching it for 25 years, you know, and it was just like given on balance, Marshall should have recused. You know, I, I think most people think on balance, the right, the right, not the legally required, I agree, but the right thing to do would have been to recuse. Anyway, um, are there any? Well, so, but I asked, I don't mean to interrupt, but I yeah. asked this question. I don't necessarily, I think as certainly there's a conflict of interest. There's no question about that, right? And it's a conflict of interest that could justify recusal. 
But could you have had a decision of the magnitude of Marbury without not only the chief justice, but unquestionably the singular leader of that institution and the only person in that institution with the gravitas to make a decision that would stick as long as it did, right? So from his he is leading that court and generating a unanimous opinion after unanimous opinion that he is writing. Without him, would Marbury have accomplished what it was meant to? Now, maybe the answer is we'd be better off without it or we didn't need that gravitas. But I think if he's sitting in his chair wondering about that, and I certainly don't know what he was thinking, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, that's a real consideration to me. I mean, that court is his. Yes. Um, in a way that future courts did not belong to the chief justice in the yes. same way, I don't think. Yes. And he's 100%. dealing with an institution that is much less powerful on its own merits than the one we experienced even 20 years later. When well, we know that there. since Congress canceled the Supreme Court's term the next year. <laughs> I mean, the year right, before, exactly excuse right, me, excuse right, me, the right, year before. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so I think, and that's, but to me, that's emblematic of the way I think of these things, right? There is an institutional phenomenon going on around Supreme Court ethics that's unavoidable, even if it's not dispositive, even if it's not the final answer to a question. Are there any major recusal events in the Supreme Court that we should pay attention to between Marbury and let's say the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when we had a whole bunch of them. Are there major things in the 19th century with recusal? Um, there were a lot of presidents and chief justices who were very friendly. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that, that continued into the 20th century. Yeah. Um, I think of two major events, both of which I think are really interesting. One is Chief Justice Stone, unrecusing himself from an SEC case <laughs> because they have Is that a word? Before. Wait, is unrecuse a word? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. If you know what I meant, I'm going to use it. Right? Perfect. I don't know. I don't know. I was an engineer, not, not an English major. <laughs> so I can't tell you for sure. Um, but what he did was announce his recusal. And then when the court lost a quorum due to several recusals, he reversed his decision to recuse and participated in the case without any evidence that the facts justifying his initial recusal had changed. What were they? Uh, we don't know. And that's a problem. Right. Potentially. Right. But I would assume if there was a, a reason like the facts had changed, he might have said something. He didn't have to. And right. he didn't say anything. Right. But the very fact that he was willing to do that to maintain a quorum, to me, is striking. Right. It tells a story about the court that I think is important and is consistent throughout its history. The other one is the fight between Justice Jackson and Justice Black. Um, Justice Black decided, participated in a case um, involving a statute that he helped pass while in the Senate. Oh, right. Of His course. His former law partner argued it. Right. right? Um, Justice Jackson was um, officiating the Nuremberg trials or, or litigating the Nuremberg trials. Um, the court, with Justice Black on it, issues an opinion, excuse me, issues a decision without an opinion. So the decision comes out in time to influence ostensibly a labor negotiation that was a dispute in the case. And Justice Jackson writes a dissent, essentially accusing Black of participating in a case he shouldn't have participated well, in. Well, I mean, clearly he shouldn't have. Fair enough. Um, but what's interesting about that case to me is that the loser was Justice Jackson in public opinion. He was vilified for it. Wow. Now, right or wrong, right? Okay. Um, the public was not interested in hearing the two justices fight with each other and wasn't interested in hearing Justice Jackson's sort of concerns about the ethics of it. Um, they were willing to trust the court, certainly the members that participated. And I think that's that's another interesting phenomenon because you can tell, right, I am an institutionalist about this, not because I think the institution is right all the time, but because I think it's sort of unavoidable as a matter of constitutional structure. Okay. 
Um, we're going to fight about a couple of those things in about 10 minutes. But before, but before, we, but before we begin fighting, um, and just for the audience, recusal is an issue. I mean, Lewis is, Lewis is the guy on this. Um, but I've done a lot of research myself and written about it. I'm not a novice on this issue, I guess is what I'm saying. Not um, at all. No, we, so, we've had this conversation in various places, so I'm glad have, to be I, having it here. And I always enjoy them. Um, all right. So now I just want to get kind of the big things out first. So um, Scalia recused in a case where he made a derogatory not a critical statement about a lower court decision striking down the Pledge of Allegiance. And then when that case got to the Supreme Court, he recused, did the right thing, I think, maybe, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Um, and then the court said no standing and reversed the case. Um, and then also Scalia refused to recuse in a case involving um, Dick Cheney. I don't want to talk, I, I didn't want to go there. I don't care. Justice Rehnquist is a different matter, right? Um, tell the audience about Laird versus Tatum, and I, which I think is just a catastrophe. Go ahead. Right. So Laird v. Tatum is a case about a national security um, program that involves surveillance of people protesting um, while at the Department of Justice. Justice Rehnquist, this is before he was Chief Justice, so Justice Rehnquist at the time, had testified before Congress um, as a member of the Justice Department in favor of the program. And then he participated in the court's decision um, evaluating the constitutionality of that program. He denied a request to recuse, he, and he explained himself in writing, which is highly unusual. But good. Um, I like that. I like that he explained himself. And there's certainly, I certainly have no problem with the justice deciding to do that. Um, if you take Justice Kagan's recent two-word explanation, I think we now have four or five explanations in the history of the court's recusal jurisprudence, so it's very unusual. Um, and I find his explanation unsatisfying but supportive of my view of the world, which in that regard is helpful, I suppose. <laughs> um, and here's what I think is interesting about that decision. And I think it's actually consistent with Justice Scalia's duck hunting case explanation. And it is this. At the time, the ABA had just rewritten the Code of Conduct for Judges and had just said that the federal statute that requires, um, that requires recusal um, includes recusal on the basis of an appearance of partiality. So right. if a justice's conduct would cause a reasonable person to question their impartiality, um, the ABA had just issued a standard that said that is good enough to recuse. That is not what the statute said at the time, right? Um, but that is, the ABA had interpreted that way. Chief Justice Rehnquist issues his decision, his explanation, and says that's not what they meant. They didn't mean that. It's not actually an appearance standard. It's the traditional... Um, deferential standard where judges decide for themselves if they are qualified to sit. And the code did not mean to apply to us or to interpret the standard that way. Um, so he basically resists the ratcheting up of the recusal standard for the Supreme Court that would include recusal, not just based on pecuniary interest or on a family member participating or on um, a friendship or relationship with one of the lawyers in the case, but in fact, a reasonable appearance that a justice shouldn't participate. He said, that's not the standard. And then he explains that his predecessors have not recused in similar circumstances, and he uses a lot of legal arguments. None of them are statutory. None of the arguments he uses rely in any meaningful way on the language of the law that exists at the time that clearly applies to the justices and requires recusal in certain circumstances. He just doesn't use the statute. So, and he makes this sort of ethical common law decision based on tradition of how the courts behave itself that says, I don't have to recuse because nobody else has. And he he does such damage to the, the ABA's interpretation that Congress responds by amending 
the recusal standard to include an appearance of impartiality standard the following year. Well, I mean, so, he, he clearly should have recused. He, 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 he testified that the statute should be passed. Yes. I mean, <laughs> well, just, and um, Justice Black wrote the statute in, um, in um, the Cole case that I was right. talking about with Justice Jackson. Right. Um, and didn't recuse. Right. So I'm not here on behalf of Justice Rehnquist. Right. I'm not I'm not at serving as his attorney here. Right? right. But it is very common for the court to behave that way. What's interesting to me is that they continue to behave that way, even with a statute in place that is unequivocal. The statute says shall recuse. Magistrate, judge or justice shall recuse if. And the justices have never read the statute that way. Well, I will they tell have you, never read it as mandatory. I will tell you that the word shall has caused me enormous angst, caused me enormous angst a long, long time ago. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to mention this for a minute, if you don't mind. Um, when I was at the department, so I was in the federal programs branch of the civil division. Which part were you in? Civil fraud. So we prosecuted the False Claims Act Got civilly. It. Okay. So um, Congress passed a law in like 19, I don't know, sometime in the 1980s, that basically instructed the executive branch of the United States to close the PLO observer mission to the United States. Um, and also, it also prohibited anybody from receiving any comfort and from giving anything to the PLO uh, support. That was clearly a first amendment violation, but it was upheld. But anyway, my point here is it said shall and OLC went crazy <laughs> and said that Congress cannot tell the president he must prosecute or, or do something that just doesn't work that way. Uh, and there was a huge debate over, it. I spent a lot of time on the word shall, um, go, more time than I ever wanted to. Uh, we ended up. That lawsuit was kind of interesting because the very elderly judge in the district court um, upheld the statute in terms of anyone receiving anything of value from the PLO. He upheld that as a criminal thing and didn't let us close the mission, which is the exact opposite of that case should have came out. But it doesn't matter. Um, so, Lewis, on the Wenchrist thing, can we agree he should have recused? Not, not, not under law. I'm not saying, I'm not saying mandatory. As, no, a man, uh, as a matter of judgment. And the what I've not done in that case, because my I've not basically I've not made my analysis ethical in that regard, right? So I've not gone back and thought of the ethical ramifications. But what he should have done is balanced the value of him participating in the case for the court's institutional mission against his ethical conflicts. And I can tell you that he would not have been alone for participating. I don't know that Laird v. Tatum was an important enough case that it required a full court because I think it was, it was I mean, it was, there was some serious constitutional problems. Oh, no, it right? was a huge case, which is why the court, I think, right. dismissed it. I know, that's the yeah. problem, right. Yeah. So, but I, I mean, important enough institutionally. Did it require right. nine justices to defend the individual rights of protesters? Not necessarily, in my view. Right. Right, but that's my view of the magnitude of, of the value of him participating, which I think was relatively low. Um, but okay. I still think he has to do that analysis. Sure. And it's unavoidable. Because you and I disagree on whether Justice Kagan should have recused herself from the Affordable Care Act case. If we have time, we're going to get to, I've been waiting, I, I've been waiting 11 years to talk to an, an actual recusal expert on this, that subject, but we may not get to it, because, but we might, because that's more about me than you. But anyway, um, all right, so um, you, your gen, let me ask you this question, which would let you, which would trigger, I hope, your separation of powers argument. Congress amends the rules tomorrow, the laws tomorrow, and says, Supreme Court justices shall recuse in any case they have a substantial financial stake, period. For the record, it says that now. And you that's don't think the, that's, that's binding the, on, you don't think that's binding on the Supreme Court? No, for this reason. Okay. Right. So um, 
That does not mean, I want to be clear, it does not mean that I don't think the justices should ever recuse when they have a financial conflict. Of and in course. fact, most of the time, as far as we can tell, they do. Now, we're not talking about gifts, right? Modern practices are unusual historically, and I think deplorable, right, when it comes to accepting six-figure yes. airplane travel. We're, we're like going to get Justice Thomas. I'm not, I'm not letting you go yeah, before yeah, we yeah. talk about Justice Thomas. So, go ahead. Good. And, that, and I, that's fine. Yes. Yeah. Um, but in terms of separation of powers argument, my view has always been that one Supreme Court in Article 3 says means one Supreme Court, right? So there must be a Supreme Court to decide a case over which the justices have jurisdiction. That's Congress's choice. But once jurisdiction exists, there must be a court to decide that case. Just to be clear, sorry, Lewis, just for the non-lawyers, yes. the original jurisdiction doesn't require a congressional act. Correct. The appellate jurisdiction right. does. I just want to make that clear. Go ahead. Which I think strengthens the argument, but that's a good, it's an important distinction, right? Yeah. So if the court has jurisdiction, it, by constitutional law, must be available to exercise that jurisdiction. Congress could, in fact, has written a statute that could result in enough justices being required by law to recuse that the court would not be available to decide the case, either because it would fail to meet a quorum, like Chief Justice Stone's case in the 40s, or because it would literally require the recusal of all not. Right? Imagine if the statute says a former justice may not participate in a case in which a recent law clerk of the Supreme Court was an attorney. Right? Right. That's not an unreasonable standard, I don't think. Right? right. They know that person personally. Yeah. Um, my view is Congress does not have the authority to indirectly render the court unavailable to exercise its jurisdiction because Article 3 guarantees the existence of one Supreme Court for that case. What I think is the most I gotta problematic stop about I, that Lewis, argument... I got to stop you. Hold on. That's powerful. Um, I have a question. But let's assume that's true for the... I'll, I'll concede the point for the moment for original jurisdiction purposes. And the reason I say that is because... I mean, the original jurisdiction extends to ambassadors, councils, ministers, we don't care. And when a state is an official party and when a state sues a state, I think it is probably constitutionally. That's the purpose of having federal courts to begin with, one of them. So right. so I do. So I but on the but, but almost everything the court does is it's appellate jurisdiction. Congress doesn't have to give the court any appellate jurisdiction under Article 3 or, or maybe has to give it a tiny, tiny bit. But it could take away almost all of it. That's what it says. So why, since there doesn't have to be any jurisdiction at all, I think your jurisdiction argument, I have issues with it when it comes to the court's appellate jurisdiction, which is up to Congress to begin with. Well, so the argument isn't jurisdictional in the sense that the court's entitled to the jurisdiction. My point is, if Congress is not willing to render the court unavailable jurisdictionally over a class of cases, right? So I don't think, it's just not realistic that Congress would write a law saying this case cannot be heard on a case-by-case -case basis, right? They wouldn't be able no, to course, do that. Of course, of course, yes. Right? So they would have to make a decision about a category of cases, and they would have to remove the entire court's jurisdiction over that case. That's very different than saying, because of the relationships of the justices to parties or issues in the case, they are required ethically to, re to um, remove themselves for reasons that are not, this category of cases is something Congress doesn't think should be decided. Right. The answer to that that I get sometimes, which is fair, is, well, couldn't they make jurisdiction dependent on recusal? Right. So if a certain number of justices recuse, then jurisdiction is gone. So it's not actually removing. Hold on. Is the, the core requirement? It's not constitutional. It's statutory. Right. No, it's statutory. Right. But it exists. Right. Okay. So um, and Congress could move it. They could make the quorum number nine. So every recusal would render. Or right. And or what to do that. But or, yes. Or but right. But what, what they're not allowed to do, in my mind, is then trigger that quorum requirement by fiat. 
right? That quorum requirement still has to be within the purview of the individual justices. So could they use their jurisdictional power? Yes, but that's a much broader exercise of power yes. that Congress has very good reasons not to do. Can they take individual justices off individual cases? Much harder, right? Because now you're taking a case, you're taking a case where Congress has acknowledged the court has authority and saying, because of these circumstances, we think the court is not empowered to decide it. But, okay, hold on. I'm, I'm confused a little bit. We're not able to decide it. Empowered, yes, not able to. So it's not about power is the point. Excuse me, I misspoke. Well, forget, forget the quorum thing for a moment. Because um, realistically, I don't think that's going to come up very often. Um, oh, it would. That's, I think, the, so, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I, that's part of the argument that I think it's misunderstood. If the justices followed the law literally and did the appearance of impartiality standard in a way that was truly objective, they all went to the same law school as of recently. They have exactly the same friends. They've been in the court long enough that they've all known all of the law clerks that have gone through there. And most of them have worked in the same places. You would regularly have arguments that say, these people are too tightly affiliated with this lawyer or this party to reasonably give the appearance. Now, would the public clamor for seven justices to recuse regularly based on their friendships? I think not. But if the law required it, it wouldn't matter. Well, right? I guess I, mean, I, guess I, have, I, I, I have a big question, though, about this. And, and let's leave aside what the current state of the law is. I think we have, we have two or three core disagreements on this, which is fine and fun. Um, here's one of them. And I did write about this. Um, so you're saying that the presence of Supreme Court jurisdiction over a case is category it will be a category of cases no right? but, but i mean by definition I, no that, that, let's let's take a hypothetical let's take a specific case where you and i would agree that on any sensible reading of judicial responsibility um four of the justices would have to recuse so now we're down to five quorum is six is that right four, quorum is six mm -hmm. um and your and your position is that's an absolute unmitigated disaster and my position is that a judge who is compromised is a bigger disaster, and we'll trust the court and we'll trust the court of appeals. If we can't, if we, you know, I'd rather have the court of appeals decision be final than have, for example, and this is a, okay, so the, I'm, I'm about to utter a sentence. I, I'm going to utter for sake of argument only. Um, going back to the Affordable Care Act case where I wrote ten different things on why Kagan had to recuse. Um, it really hit me there. Is it more important the law be upheld or more important that Kagan recuse, that, that Kagan follows the technical requirements of recusal? Um, I, I think judges shouldn't sit on cases where they should be recused as a matter of law come hell or high water. I don't care what the consequences are. It's a rule of law issue to me. Um, and if you were the parties and the one party was going to lose because of the conflict, or maybe the party who's going to lose because the judge wants to go out of the way to show they don't have a conflict, whichever it is, um, they're the big loser. But but I, I just, to me, all right, so the Court of Appeals decides it. What's the big deal? It's not an original jurisdiction case. Uh, this is for non-original right. jurisdiction case. Yeah. So if the question is, I can live with a world where the justices do that to themselves. The I world see. I can't live in is Congress setting the standard. Tell me why. Right? So because remember, the, the recusal statute says something that we all think is reasonably, is reasonable, Right appearance of impartiality, except it's reasonable until it isn't, right? <laughs> if we read that too broadly, then it's not reasonable, right? Right? Because I think whether Justice Scalia was right in the, the Cheney case, right? there's lots of examples where the parties know each other, right? And those justices are able to be impartial, right? So 
Hey, Lewis, sorry, Lewis, sorry, but Lewis, hold on, sorry. I got to tell you, it's not the way you said that. Yes, that's all true. It's even worse than that. There, we have evidence of someone who argued a case in the court, and then because of the Supreme Court Historical Society was fraternizing with the justice that night. Yes. <laughs> right, right. And so the question is, I'm totally comfortable with an argument that says that's unethical. They should recuse themselves. Where I think the Constitution has something to say about this is that Congress isn't in the position to mandate recusal of the Supreme Court justices in that way, because the institutional considerations are case by case specific and are real. So the, and this, and the example I give is this, and it's, I agree, it's a little um, dramatic, but it's actually happened. Imagine we had um, Trump v. Clinton to decide the 2016 election. We had Bush v. Gore, right, Trump sure, v. Clinton. Uh, we're likely to be there in 2024, go ahead. <laughs> right, Justice Ginsburg said publicly, President, candidate Trump is unfit for office. Right. But she but did apologize and recant. Well, okay, but she said it, yeah. right? Yes. And, and I think we all believe that she meant it, and I'm not here to disparage. I agree 100%. Right? I agree 100%. Yeah. Um, if that case goes to the Supreme Court, and it was decided by the Fifth Circuit below, <laughs> you know who wins, right? If it was decided by the First Circuit below, I think we probably know who wins. She recuses herself, and the Supreme Court ties we now have a regional court of appeals choosing the presidency. That, I think, is intolerable as a matter of institutional responsibility, such that Justice Ginsburg has got to participate in that case. Now, I see the argument that recusal is merited, and I wouldn't fault her for doing it, except that I think she's doing the country and the institution a disservice by letting eight justices decide the presidency in what will almost certainly be a tie, right? There are other ways to fix that, but I think that example is why the statute is never going to be actually enforceable. First of all, it's not literally enforceable because there's no way to force a justice to take themselves off, which is a, a pragmatic argument that I think is relevant. But I also don't think as a separation of powers argument, that's where we should be looking, right? The Supreme Court has never acted like recusal was a purely legal question, ever. And they but still don't. But it is. <laughs> I mean, it's a rule well, of law question. But it never has been. And in fact, it well, and it wasn't prior to 1948. Prior to 1948, there was no law governing Supreme Court recusal. The only law would have been common law, which was still only financial conflicts. Right. Blackstone's commentaries are just financial conflicts. Congress includes the Supreme Court in 1948 for the first time and is roundly ignored until the 70s when they amend it and then is roundly ignored again. That's not to say that justices never recuse themselves. Right. They don't ever do statutory interpretation. And Scalia is the best example. Yeah, no, I get it. I don't Nobody know. Nobody claims to be more of a textualist, right? And he doesn't apply the language of yeah, that statute he... to himself once in that duck hunting. And to be clear, he was not a textualist. So let's just pack. Well, fair enough. Let's you and I probably agree about that. But you get my point, right? <laughs> yes, I do. That, that analysis doesn't look anything like statutory interpretation so, from somebody who knew the difference. So let me ask you this. Okay, let, let, let me ask you this do you uh and this i'm i'm this is like this i hate doing this kind of argument but we're going to do it for a second i think congress has the power under the necessary and proper clause to give the supreme court justices one law clerk 10 law clerks 30 law clerks and maybe probably no law clerks um because congress has if Congress doesn't allocate money, I mean, they can hire them themselves, which I think was the early practice anyway, but um, they can hire them themselves. But do you agree Congress could do that? 
Oh, yes. Could Congress set the time and date of when the building is going to be open for security reasons, you know, in a different world, um, under necessary and proper clause? So we agree, we agree that Congress can get in the court's business, not pursuant to Congress's power under Article 3 to shape the jurisdiction of the court and on the appellate no. jurisdiction, but because of necessary and proper clause. Yes. In fact, they can set a quorum and the number of justices, and they have a tremendous amount of authority over the workings of the court. So, wait, that, that's interesting to me. I wish we had two hours. Um, um, you think Congress could constitutionally set the quorum number for the court against the court's objections? Yes. Under what power? And in fact, I th and, and I think they should. On the necessary and proper clause, they should set six as the not and not. A, I don't think I think they can do better than set a quorum number. I think they should set the number of justices required to reach a binding decision. I think they should require a supermajority of the court to reach a decision. Well, you and I, I agree that on that, but that's a whole different podcast. I would love to talk to you about that. that what, what, what Lewis is referring to there is a requirement that if they're going to strike down a law. Maybe it takes two thirds or three fourths or whatever. That's sweet work. I agree about that. That's music to my ears, but we'll leave that aside. That's, that's, another, that's a different yeah. podcast. Um, but the reason all those powers are different. Tell me. That's what I want to know. Don't run afoul of the one Supreme Court requirement in Article 3. So it you're is not okay. possible to render the court non existent in a single case through the quorum number. It's not possible. As long as the justices retain authority over their recusal decisions, the quorum number could be nine, and the court is still in charge of whether it exists for the purpose of that case. The justices would just make the institutional decision to participate, not recuse, and maintain nine, just like they did with six in 1947 in the case involving Chief Justice Stone. Why couldn't Congress pass a law under the Necessary and Proper Clause um, saying in any case involving the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction, comma, the justices shall recuse themselves in cases of the appearance of impropriety. What is unconstitutional about that? Well, they, that's exactly what they did. And that's what 28 U.S.C. 455 says. I know, that's why I'm asking. The recusal I, know. Statute. I know, right? I, know. But I want to be for the listeners, right? Or for the, okay. I want to be, yes. that, is, that has been law since 1972, at least. Right. Um, and the problem is the same problem I've from the beginning. That is the Congress of the United States in a single case retaining the power to shut down the court, not in a category of cases. It's not changing the scope of the court's authority. It's changing the existence of a Supreme Court in a case over which that court has been granted jurisdiction in advance by Congress. And Congress does, it is one Supreme Court that must exist. Well, to okay. render it unavailable right. is a violation of Article 3. That's my view. So, but I... I and that statute can do that, right? I'm a little confused about... Wait, but you said... I'm, I'm, I'm still confused about the comma in my... It's, 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 it, the, the category is all cases of appellate jurisdiction. And then it is up to the... The question is going to be a remedy, I, I think. But before we get to the remedy... Um, you're saying Congress lacks the constitutional power, for example, to say to the court, you have appellate jurisdiction over these categories of cases, which is how it works now, um, right. comma, but you shall not exercise any jurisdiction in your appellate capacity over, let's just say, um, a case under $100,000. That's a constitution. We know that's constitutional. Right. Yes. Okay. We have we have, we well, have the question now. Okay. I misunderstood. So my my answer to that is jurisdiction is not an individual. It's not a is not a power retained by an individual justice. Jurisdiction is institutional power. The court has jurisdiction, or the court doesn't. 
Okay. An individual justice does not. So I, that's part of the that's part of the argument in the book right. is whether jurisdiction stripping, which is the term for limiting appellate jurisdiction. I'm doing this for the right. I know you yeah. know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, jurisdiction is not an individual power. Jurisdiction is an institutional power. So when we strip the we don't strip the appellate jurisdiction of a justice. Right. We strip the appellate jurisdiction of the court. And yes. I agree that Congress can do that. But that is a prospective yes. enterprise. Right. Yes. That is not a case by case. Yes. analysis. Yes. Um, okay. and there's lots of reasons why we don't think of jurisdiction as individual. So my co-blogger, so, so it feels like many of our differences and many of the arguments you're making, which are really well thought out, um, do to a great deal hinge on this idea that there has to be one uniform Supreme Court. Um, right. My co-blogger, Mike Dorff, well, I'm, I'm his co-blogger to be technical about it, but the blog I write for, which is Dorff on Law, which is run by a former Justice Kennedy law clerk, Michael Dorff. And a, and a great blog. I really like it. I, I follow you. it closely. I appreciate that. Mike's great. Um, Mike is one of those wicked smart people. In our, we're all smart, but Mike's wicked smart, um, like, like Judge Posner. Anyway, um, so he and Lisa Tucker, Professor Lisa Tucker, wrote a piece saying that one doesn't really mean one. That's not really what they said. But, they, but, but what they basically said was, if a justice were to recuse and there was a, you know, infrastructure laws in place to replace that justice with a retired court of appeals just, judge or a current court of appeals judge or a retired justice, that would not, the word one is not big enough, strong enough to stop that from happening. For that case that was being decided, there would still be one Supreme Court for that case. Right. So I think there's, there's a few responses. And I, I know that they are, that is a, their article is also very thoughtful and is careful about how far it goes, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. So there's a problem with having a just a judge who is not confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, acting as a substitute or acting as a replacement. Right. So having a lower court judge, we think of that hierarchy in lots of places in the judiciary as mandated by the Constitution. Right. So the lower just lower court judges cannot bind the Supreme Court with the code of conduct for the for the federal judiciary. Right. There's lots of cases. No, the, court of, the court of appeals judges sit on the district court and district courts in the court of appeals all the time. Yes. Right. Because they exist at the pleasure of Congress. Right. So Congress yeah. can create that dynamic. Okay. I also think, by the way, that sitting by designation is constitutionally required because I think the same argument about recusal rendering a court unavailable works at the district court level when you only have one district court judge. Right. In the district. And I made that argument in the book also. Right. I think um, the sitting by designation is allowed. Replacement judges are allowed. But I think they're actually constitutionally required. So I agree with you. We, we agree on that. So good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the word in one Supreme Court that's overlooked by that argument is supreme. It's not one. Right. So there it might be that there is one court in the general sense that allows for replacements. But if we can agree that lower court judges sitting as a Supreme Court justice for one case is problematic. And I think it is. I don't think it um, is. we can certainly see how it's different. Well, we can certainly see how it's different than a retired justice sitting. I think we can make that distinction. We don't know there's going to be enough retired justices either, right, to fill out the quorum. Sure, sure, definitely. Or to make a quorum, right? I mean, right. that's that's a very variable number, right? And it's right. And oftentimes, not all of those retired justices, and I mean this um, sincere with sincere respect, are capable of. No, no, Justice O'Connor is is unhealthy right now. She can't sit. Right. Um, so it's not as simple as having a stable. It would not be a stable of justices to fill those holes. Right. The other problem is which one do you pick? That will have serious consequences the outcome of the case. But I think the word supreme matters. And to me, that what that means and the way we've read it is that there has to be one finite defined body that is last. So the same reason you couldn't have the Supreme Court sit in panels 
It's the same reason you couldn't have a variable membership because that makes it not supreme. How do you know when you're done? If you have a panel of three justices decide a case and that is not reviewable by the whole court, then I would argue that's not one Supreme Court, right? Because members of the Supreme Court didn't participate and you're granting supremacy to a subset of the nine, right? It's either not one or not Supreme. But that ha- wait a minute, I, now you've lost me because, there, but when any justice recuses themselves and that happens, Happened. I mean, Kagan recused herself from 250 or 300 cases. Yeah, not yes. the one she should have, but 250 right. and 300 other cases. Um, eight, eight. I mean, I don't. I'm not sure I see your argument. So they, they have seven or eight justices now. That that's 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 allowed. That's a legal thing. I don't, I'm not sure. It is, but there's no question that she is a member of that one Supreme Court, and that she is basically voting to abstain. Yes. Right. So she's not right. She's active in that case, I see and she's recusing herself. I see. Right. Yes. So it's no different than a vote to abstain. Yes. Whereas for having another branch of government force her out of that case. And then I don't know how we would choose a replacement. That's far more, in my mind, politically fraught or at least as politically fraught as the decision. To I, I, I think that, I think that's fair. OK, right, so that's where we end up. OK, so I've been waiting 14 years. No, uh, 13 years sorry, 12 years, to talk about this issue with a real expert. I've talked about it a thousand times, but not with a real expert. We have about 10 minutes left. I'm going to make my strongest case in three minutes why Justice Kagan absolutely, under the law, had to recuse in the Affordable Care Act case, which would have meant the 11th Circuit opinion would have been the opinion that mattered because it would the, the case would have tied 4-4 and Obamacare would have been struck down. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying this against all, I'm a huge believer in Obamacare. I think it was a great thing for the country. So I'm saying this against all interest. Okay. So this is how it played out. I can do it in two minutes. The Affordable Care Act, you know, whether it's going to pass or not, is the front page of every newspaper. Uh, it passes by on, on the number, 60. They have to get 60 because of the Senate filibuster. The Dems had 60 for like a minute. They did dirty tricks to get to that 60. I concede that as a Democrat myself. I concede dirty tricks were done. Doesn't matter. They pass it, 60 votes. Okay. The, the minute it passes, Kagan writes to... Um, Lawrence Tribe, who is officially, I believe, an advisor to the Obama administration in an official capacity. And Kagan says, Larry, we have the votes. You know, big meaning she's very happy the law was passed. If it was just that, I would not say she had to recuse. Some people do. I would not say that's enough for recusal. Okay, it's one, it's one, it's one email. But immediately thereafter, she gets an email from Neil Cattell who says, I'm paraphrasing this, but normally the Solicitor General's office, which is what Kagan was the head of, does not litigate in the lower courts. But if the case is incredibly important, then they might. So Cattell says, should we litigate this in the lower courts? Should we meet to discuss this? Kagan says, yes, we're going to litigate it, period, and there's nothing else. And then Kagan testified at a confirmation hearing. What she told Neil Cattell basically was, don't tell me anything about the Affordable Care Act case for the rest of my time in this office. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. It's your case. And that's what happened. He argued it. And that's, that's what happened. Okay. In anticipation of joining the court. Neil Cattell or, or Kagan? No, Justice Kagan yes, did 100%. that in anticipation yes. of being nominated. Yes, yes. Yeah. She knew, yes. And she, yes. One, one, more, one more thing. One more fact. So that, that all happened. In that time period, that year, there were, there were two huge, there was a huge affirmative action case and a huge immigration law case. Kagan recused in both. She recused in both of those cases and 250 other cases, give or take 10 or 15. That's a lot of cases to recuse on. And a lot of those recusals were technical, where they were cases that, yes, the, the Solicitor General worked on, 
but only to in a very modest. She never heard of them. Like she she doesn't hear all the cases about all the cases. So so you know um, now. <laughs> it seems to me we have to go to the moment in time when she said to Neil Cattell, "Do not tell me about this case. Tell me about every other case, but not this one." There is no good explanation for that to me that would rebut a real motion for recusal. Why am I wrong? Because that's what a wall is for. <laughs> because that's exactly how you would do it, right? If you wanted to do it the right way, you would say, I might end up on the court. I don't want to be precluded from deciding this case. So I'm going to stay out of it. I mean, it, in my mind, it's the only way to do what she did. She did exactly now. We don't, whether we believe her, I, I think we're not arguing. I believe her. Hold on. I believe her. I, I, yeah, Lewis, right. I believe her. I, 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 yes, we both do. We yeah. both do. Yeah. Um, if she's, and since we believe her, my mind is that's exactly what you, one, would be, one would have to do to protect oneself's ability to participate in the case later by not being part of its litigation in your office. Now, the fact that she didn't do that in other cases is exactly my point about the institutional phenomenon of the Supreme Court, right? That she decided that was the case that needed a full court. She wasn't even on the court. <laughs> if, if I become a member of the court, I don't want to have to recuse myself. So I took the steps that one would take to be insulated from the conflict. Doesn't that suggest prejudgment? No. Well, so good. So um, the Minnesota judicial campaigning case that Justice yeah. Scalia wrote. The white case. I was, yeah. I, the white, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, says, and I think correctly, ideology, a conflict of ideology is not a is not a judicially actionable conflict, right? So having an opinion about the law makes you a good judge, not a biased judge. Well, Lewis, hold on. That's, hold, hold, hold on. Facts and parties. Hold on. Well, she, but I mean, do you think Neil Cattell would have constructed a litigation? Okay. Neil Cattell is in his office working late at night, preparing for the 11th Circuit argument the next day. Okay. And, um, he realizes one of his best arguments is one that Kagan will not like as his boss. And, 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 and even in, in related cases in the past, they may have discussed it or whatever. You think he's going to make that argument in the court if he thinks his boss doesn't want him to? No. He's a reasonable person who's, 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 who's ambitious, and he's not going to piss her off. Why isn't that enough? Well, I think that— I mean, I mean if, she, if she argued the case in the lower court, she can't sit on it, right? Agreed. If That's she, why she recused from 250 other cases, right? The Solicitor General always does that when they become a member yes. of the court. It's not yes. unusual for SGEs to be elevated. Yes. And that's, so that's, yes, she, she behaved traditionally um, consistent with her predecessors in all but the ACA case. Yes. And I think, but I think her break from tradition came with the appropriate break in conduct or new conduct, namely walling herself off. Now, you're right. If, um, if the problem was, her existence as SG influenced Neil Cattal. Of course it did. The acting SG. Of Fair course. But so would, the, so would the president. So would the identity of the president at the time, right? He's also not going to make an argument that's going to upset President Obama. Sure. Even if he didn't think it was the best argument. Because sure. President Obama could nominate him to the court or to, right? So that is not her problem as an ethical problem, right? That's, one step, that, that's, is, that's one step removed. I'm talking about Cattal's relationship with Kagan which is very direct, every day, et cetera, et cetera. Unless you believe, unless, well, if we really believe her, though, right? I, I mean, do believe there's two, Right, and I do too. And I think there's a difference between creating a wall that is formal and creating a wall that is real, right? If she actually created a wall that gave Katala confidence 
that it is your case. But so if I if my reading of it is for the very reason she chose to create the wall, she would have created the kind of wall that would have insulated him from any ramifications after the fact. She would never have retaliated or been critical of him for the very reason she created a wall in the first place. So what I, I see what Justice Kagan did is actually above and beyond, because we know when she gets on the court, she's not required to recuse because nobody can make her. Well, that's your position. I respectfully disagree, Fair but enough. go ahead. Well, she's certainly not going to recuse against her will. We know that. That never happens, right? We never force a justice. But we, we have should. never successfully but we forced should. a justice. But we should. But I don't know how we could. Right. We don't have a way to do that yet um, without sending another branch of government to remove them, which is problematic. And well, I mean, not, right? I, I think, I don't know. The, I don't know, because didn't the Supreme Court put a recuse, uh, put a due process standard into the recusal context in the case involving Blankenship and, and the West Virginia, was it, Supreme Court? I there mean, has always been a due process feature of recusal, yes, right? It is a higher bar than the statutory bar. And in my mind, the due process standard is exactly what the court should use. They should not pretend, because they're not using the statutory standard, they should not pretend. They should apply the due process clause because they know that they're governed by that. Let me ask you this, and, and, and we have two more minutes, and I wish we'd gone forever. Um, if, if, we found a, if, we, if we found a memo from Kagan to Cattell, written memo, saying, Dear Neil, please handle the Affordable Care Act case. Do not tell me anything about it. I never want to hear about it. It's not my business because I think I have reason to believe that the next vacancy, President Obama may or may not appoint me. I don't want to be jumping the gun here, but it's possible. And I want to be able to sit on the case in case he does. After saying yes. to Larry Tribe, great news, yes. we have the votes. I don't understand how you don't see a problem with that. I just don't. I, well, and I, and I, I mean... I, I'm surprised that you don't because you already think that they know what they're going to do in advance. So the having a feeling about being happy about a policy choice and then sitting as a justice is just, is just the way of, is just the nature of having human judges, right? We, you and I could probably agree on what all nine justices will think about a given statute the minute it's passed, right? Whether they wrote down that they're excited. Now, does that create an appearance problem? More than if she hadn't written it, for sure. But I would say what she is doing at that stage is exactly the institutional calculus she's required to do as a justice. She's just doing it optimistically. So she's I'm, doing it when I'm on the court. What do I think is best for the court? Is it me being part of this, the evaluation of the most significant public policy decision in the country's last 30 years? <laughs> or, right, or does the fact that everybody know that I'm in favor of the policy means I have to recuse? Right? I think it depends how we know. Obviously, Justice Thomas doesn't have to recuse in Dobbs, even though we know he prejudged it, because he's written right. 15 times before, in opinions, Roe should be overturned. Um, well, we agree on that 100%. Obviously, Justice Thomas. Um, on the other hand, a new justice who writes a letter to a friend, or, or Scalia, talking about the pledge case and prejudging it publicly. See, the thing about the Kagan thing is that it was public. I mean, it, it, it was public. That's the problem. Well, she didn't write it publicly. It went public. She was asked about, well, we knew it. I mean, we knew. We, we knew right. So I, I think, it, I don't know. This, this is fascinating. Different. So I would contrast Justice Ginsburg's comment about candidate Trump with Justice Kagan's comment about the law, mm -hmm. right? Justice Ginsburg's comment about candidate Trump is about the parties and the facts of a case yes. that is going to appear before her. Yes. Justice Kagan is excited about a law. Now, you and I both know that she thinks that law is constitutional. 
But that is a very different predisposition than By this the, person should lose this case. And, and right? people listening to this, Lewis, will say, wait, she voted to strike down the Medicaid part. But we know that's a, that was all coerced by Roberts. I'm not going to even go there. Um, all right. So we have to leave it there. I, I, your argument's strong. I still think I'm right, even though you're the expert on this one. Um, I will say this to, to close it out. And I, I want your reaction. Then we got to go. So, Lewis, if you're right, and I, if you're right and I'm wrong, if you're right and Mike Dorff and, and Lisa Tucker were wrong, that there has to be one Supreme Court, that has implications. Any remedy is going to be too complicated anyway, which I do have sympathy for. Like, how do we pick the replacement justice is a real problem. I think there are going to be very few cases we need to, because I think most cases there'll be a quorum, but leaving all that, or Congress can make the quorum number four, whatever. But leaving all that aside, if you're right, that's just one more argument. Now we're going well beyond recusal. If you're right, that's just one more argument as to why this institution is terrible and broken and has been broken and terrible from the start. Because if you give government, not you, if the, if the Constitution gives government officials effectively unreviewable power for life and there's no way to recuse them, even in the most obvious cases of recusal, then we have a, the institution is broken for reasons beyond those I've previously identified. Does that make sense? I would just say this. Yeah. You always make sense. That's never the problem. <laughs> yeah, I so that. I would say this, right? Um, what has changed in my mind is the, is the coverage of the court and the politicization of the court from the outside, right? So we now know things about Justice Thomas's travel that we didn't know about Justice Fortas regularly dining in the White House right. with President Johnson or the fact that Chief, Judge Mar Chief Justice Marshall had the world's greatest conflict of interest in marbering. Our feelings about the court were not as skeptical over the first 200 years of similar activity as they are now, which to me is a good sign. So what I think the solution to all of this is, is greater public scrutiny of the justices and effectively public accountability, even if it doesn't result in a remedy. Because I think I am buoyed by the fact that Justice Thomas felt required to provide a response to the criticism that he received. Now, I thought his response was wildly inadequate right. and totally unsatisfactory, but he would, for the previous 220 years, that would never have happened. And then he recused himself in a case. And then he recused himself. Justice right. Kagan explains her recusal as a signal to her colleagues. Yes. Um, Justice Alito goes public with, again, what yes. I thought were totally unsatisfying arguments. Well, and wrong, but mistaken would, arguments. Wrong, yeah. but would never have done that over the previous two centuries. So I see as... As the politicization ramps up, I think the scrutiny is our best check. And my general view is we need to stop talking about, excuse me, about legal command and control solutions because they're not only do I think they're unconstitutional, they're unrealistic. And what we need to do is be critical publicly of this institution and expect that the justices will either be appointed based on different criteria going forward or will behave differently. And that Polyanish, is Polyannish, perhaps. Yeah. But I think that's all we have. Okay. That's a great answer. I really enjoyed this discussion. I, I have an hour. And thank you for mentioning Justice Thomas, because I said we'd get there, and I didn't. And I wish we had more time to talk about it. But, Lewis, thank you so much. And listen, everybody out there, if you have questions, well, first of all, you should read his book anyway, because it's a great book, and it tells you about recusal. But if you have recusal questions, this is the man you want to talk to. Um, and I think we probably, if we really sat down for hours, we would find out we agree on more than this podcast probably suggested. Um, Lewis, thank you so much for being here. It was really a pleasure. Thank you, Eric. I enjoyed it. Thanks.